Well, good morning. I know that uh, folks are settling in, so I'll give everybody a minute here. Good morning to the folks who are tuning in from home. Uh, good morning to the folks who are downstairs. And again, we just wanna we just wanna thank everyone. Um, we know there's been a lot of changes between you know upstairs and downstairs and stay home and. Uh, you know, and we're just really doing our best to be obedient to the guidelines and to our landlord. They're going to begin to use the space soon, so that's going to increase the traffic. And so please be vigilant with the masks, be vigilant and keeping your distance, uh, especially when you're moving around. Uh, and we appreciate no pastor ever wants to tell people stay home, right? So it's, it's, it's a horrible thing really to have to do, I mean, to sit there and look at the list. And so we've tried to really come up with a, with a system where folks can, can um, be part of the service. And so what the leadership team has decided is uh, for folks who are newer, uh, we really want to prioritize your attendance and your ability to come to the in-person services. And for folks who are, who are single and maybe don't have as big of a family or a community around them, we also want to pr prioritize your um, attendance in person. And so the rest of us, particularly if you're a regular attender, we're going to put you on an on a, you know, alternating schedule. And so we're going to ask that some weeks you do stay home. And so we'll reach out to you. Um, but, and, and honestly, if you're having, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I do. But sometimes I don't know what's going on. If you're having a really you know, rough week and you want to say, you know, Pastor, this week I just really feel like I should be there, then amen. We're going to prioritize that as well. So don't hesitate to reach out. But, you know, in general, it's the, you know, the more mature, older believers, regular attenders that we're going to ask to occasionally stay home. And again, we appreciate that. Um, you know, this isn't easy for anybody, you know, for anybody who's going to run a business or lead an organization or just us as individuals. But we can encourage one another. We can try to be helpers. We can look around for places where we can make a positive difference, right? And, uh, and so that's what we want to do. And so we want to be, be salt and light. And so uh, a few other announcements. Um, Angel Tree gifts are due back at the church next Sunday. Thank you to everyone who took a name of a child. I think they were all gone immediately. Um, I shared with the folks at Teen Challenge uh, what a blessing that's going to be. So um, they're going to be blessed, and I know we'll be blessed to be able to do that as well. Um, we cannot take walk-ins. I know there were a couple this morning, and we certainly don't want to turn anybody away if there was a disconnect, um, but we really can't take walk-ins. So next week, you know, if, uh, if, if, if we know you, I'm going to tell you to go home. If I don't know you, I'm probably not going to tell you to go home because that's not a good. But again, we hate to have to do that, but we have to stick to the, to the number. They're really getting strict to the number. And again, we don't own this building, so we, have, um, we really have to be... Um, Really have to be the following the rules there. With that, uh, um, I think that's it, right? Um, right, Kathy? Am I missing anything? I'm good. I get the thumbs up. I don't. I, I got it. The thumbs up from Becky or Kathy because I don't know what I'm doing without those guardrails. See, I knew it. Go ahead. So we use the side door and they use the front door typically, so just make sure you stick to that and be, you know, be aware with parking 
uh, the folks are coming early. So uh, I'm going to uh, pray now. I want to I want to open us up in prayer. And uh, and as we do transition in prayer, I want to specifically mention uh, I know there's a few people who've experienced recent uh, cancer diagnosis, uh, recent loss. Uh, there's been a lot of really difficult times. Um, some other people have reached out. Uh, there was somebody whose family member committed suicide, and there's just a lot of very, very difficult days that folks are going through. And so uh, as we pray for our service, I, wanna, I want us to just take a moment and really consider uh, these, these prayer requests and, and any other prayer requests that are in your heart in this room, the Lord knows, and, uh, and just ask Him to prepare our hearts, to give us a sense uh, of, of where we are and of what He wants to do in the midst. Amen? So close your eyes. We're going to open in prayer. Father, we are grateful that you are sovereign and good, that you are in control, Lord, of all things, that you can be trusted, that you give us peace in you, that you're our source, that you're our direction, that you are Lord over all and of all. And so, Father, we come to this place primarily to worship you, God. We come to this place primarily out of gratitude for who you are and for the power of the gospel to set us free. And so, Father, we're here in this place, and we ask even now that you begin to minister to each of our spirits, Lord, dare I say, deeper than ever before. God, we don't, we don't want to just do what we always do. We want to press in this morning. Father, the call of a Christian is, is always simply to press into Jesus, and we get so distracted. So help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, God. Help, help our spirits just receive the truth of your word. Help it penetrate. Father, leave us, leave us in this place, Father, completely convicted, challenged, encouraged, comforted, emboldened, Father, but with a mission. Help us to leave this place today with a mission to be ambassadors for you, God. And so, Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. Have your way in the word and the worship in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a quote um, that I read once, and it says, At times like, In times like these, it helps to remember there have always been times like these. You know, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, we talked about, imagine if you were born in 1900, the things you would have seen in the first 75 years of life. But the fact is, struggle is always part of the human experience on this side of eternity. And yet, it is always in darkness that the light most needs to shine. It is always in darkness that the light most needs to shine. And so the Bible is filled with letters and with teachings and with testimonies to encourage believers in all kind of context to contend for the gospel in times of peace and prosperity, in times of persecution, in times of famine, in times of war, contend for the gospel. The message is the same because the problem with the world today isn't out there, it's in here. The problem with the world today is the human heart. And only the gospel can change that. 
So I want to encourage you this morning. I'm encouraged. You know, I was in prayer considering what to preach on. And, and my time at the Lord, I felt like I kept telling him, Lord, it just seems like everything's so upside down. Like in the world today, just in general, and then you and then you go, is it just because I'm getting older and I'm no, or is it? And then you just go, no, no, it's it's just getting crazy. And then we have an earthquake. Why are you getting ready for the sermon? Jolie's like, whoa. So what do you do? What do you do? I I, I said to the Lord, it feels like everything is upside down. And he said, it is. It is upside down. The whole world system is upside down. The gospel is supposed to turn it right side up. It is into an upside down world. I called you. Of course, things are upside down. People are far from God. Life seems more and more chaotic. And he reminded me that human nature turns us upside down. And yet the power of the gospel can radically change the most lost humans in the world, and it continues to do that. When we encounter Jesus, and only when we encounter Jesus, are we beginning to walk right side up. And living that way will confront a sinful world, and yet we're called to be living epistles. We're called to preach the word, to share Jesus, to make disciples. Not to leave and be separate from the world, but to be changed by the Lord and then to go back into the world as an ambassador. If our goal is to make disciples, if that's the call, if that's the main reason the church exists, then in times of unrest and uncertainty, in times where clearly the limits of what humans can do are tested, God uses those times to open the hearts of men. Which means that the harvest is plentiful. Which means that we have work to do. And so I'm excited because the Lord told me, of course things are upside down. That's why the church exists. And the fact is, God's mission is normally carried out in the midst of persecution, pandemics, and pain. Look Look all throughout Scripture. God's mission is normally carried out in the midst of persecution, pandemics, and pain. Our primary problem is not political or economic or social. Those things reflect the main problem with humanity, which is sin, and the cure is the blood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to encourage each of us with this simple rallying cry, press into Jesus and turn the world upside down. Press into Jesus and turn the world upside down. So we're going to look at some steps we can take to be difference makers for the cause of Christ. If you'd just stand as we transition to worship. Father, have your way. Give us ears to hear this morning. Good morning. I just wanted to say a couple words. Last week I, I had said that I had had a bad week, and I just, a few people reached out to me and made sure, and I just am so grateful that we're that kind of a, a body, that we're that kind of a church that reach out to one another. So, and I reached out to a couple of people too, and so I want to encourage you to just 
share your life with each other, bear your souls to each other. Our proximity to one another in spirit makes us stronger Christians. Amen. Praise God. Also, draw close to God because he is making us into what he wants. He is using all of these trials, all of this pandemic, the earthquake even, he allowed to shake. Amen. Everything is not wasted. He's changing who you are. He's changing how you'll go out into this world with everything that comes your way.
up on ourselves. God, give us the courage to turn over our hearts to you, God, our wills to you. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my Speak what is true. Sing it again. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. And I am found, I am yours, I am loved and I made yours, I have life, I can breathe, I am
Father in heaven, our prayer this morning is that the words that we just sang would be the cry of our hearts. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my life, Lord. Because we say that when we're here and we walk out the door and we say, it's my life, Lord. It's my heart, Lord. And yet you ask us to give those things to you, God. So, Father, we pray that you help us this morning in our relentless pursuit of you, Father, that you would increase our faith, that you would give us a hunger and thirst for your presence and your righteousness, Father, that we would know the living water, that we would never thirst. Have your way this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may be seated. Thank you, worship team. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 17, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, they have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed When they heard these things, and when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Some principles I want to draw out of that scripture in the time that we have together this morning. 
And first, as I mentioned, I want us to pay particular attention to verse 6 because that's going to frame the rest of the talk. It's the sermon title, and dare I say, the rally cry. Those folks who have turned the world upside down, they've come here also. These men who have turned the world upside down, that's the first point I want to make. That the message of the gospel, that the message of the cross is an offense. It causes turmoil. It caused turmoil when I encountered it. We are in our natural state resistant to the things of God. Tim Keller goes as far as to say, man in his natural state hates God and hates the things of God. It's the first point. It's a message the flesh is always going to resist. And it's the reason for the power of the word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, what they were saying wasn't that these men are turning things upside down for good. They weren't saying it in the way that I'm going to twist it. They were saying, hey, these, these guys, these Christians, they're the problem, you know. We had this perfectly good system of, you know, bribes and debauchery and, you know, cult worship. And, you know, everybody was doing their thing. And these Christians trying to come along. These Christians are causing problems. They're causing problems in the workplace, in their families. If these people would just stop talking about Jesus. I remember, I'm going to pick on Darren for a minute. He's downstairs. But when he first said, come to the church, him and his wife. And he said, man, I would hear you talk week after week, and there was, you know, something there, was, you know, encouraging, and I, and I heard it, and I, you know, I can really relate, you know, I can, I can grab onto these principles, this guy's, you know, but this Jesus thing, I just don't, if he could just, you know, I just don't get the Jesus thing. This is, you know, years ago, fortunately, Darren got the Jesus thing, right? But it's a message that we try to say, well, you know, I mean, I kind of, I want to be a good person, like, that, none of that's offensive, until Jesus outlines the way. And then we go, well, Jesus, I mean, shouldn't I get to decide that? I mean, shouldn't I get to take my life and my heart and my will, those things back? See, people don't even know we love Jesus sometimes. Sometimes people are so apt to conform to culture that they go with the flow and they don't upset the, the status quo. And so there's a tension where the, the, the church is countercultural, but we're not count, we're counter the culture, but we're not counter the people. We've, we've, we've fleshed this whole uh, principle out before, but we're called to contend for the gospel, the truth, the exclusive truth is always exclusive, right? If one thing's true by nature, other things are false. And we're called to stand boldly for the truth of the gospel, but do it with humility and gentleness and respect and love, kindness. So there's a way that we're called to upset the system, but to do it in a way where, you know, it's hard, right? And so what do we do? So people either withdraw or they, you know, they dig in and they're ready to fight to the death. And that's what we're left with. The church is either withdrawn entirely or, you know, have drawn up battlegrounds where I don't know how productive some of them are. See, the gospel call is always a call to turn the world upside down. It's always a call to turn the system of living upside down. But it has to begin in our hearts first. 
We have to begin to live that out. Now, I'm not saying we have to have our, you know, ducks all in a row before we can begin to minister, but I'm saying we have to walk with integrity. We have to do the things we profess. Because when the gospel comes in its power to any place, to any soul, the profound change that happens through families, through cultures, through anywhere, it happens one soul at a time. It happens when somebody's profoundly changed and the gospel's lived out and that change moves forward. And so that's where we find ourselves. At a culture that's always been and always will be a thing against the things of God because they are slaves to self like we are. So now what do we do? That's, that's, that's where we are. We're called to turn the world upside down in a system that's upside down. And, and, and then there's this tension. And so what do we do? We're called to be ambassadors. We don't want to withdraw. So what do we do? How are we supposed to live this out? Well, I think we can pull it all out of the scripture. Verse 2 says, Paul... As was his custom, Paul, as was his custom, in other words, this was typical in Paul's life to go to the synagogues, to reason. He had a routine. He had habits. Part of Paul's rhythm of life was to contend for the gospel wherever and whenever he could. And we saw the challenges of that. You see it in Mars Hill at the Areopagus. Where Paul could have said, he could have looked around, and he could have said, you're all going to hell. Those are all idols. It's evil. It's an abomination. You're worshiping Satan, and I have the truth, and I need to tell you all. And now he said that, just not that way, right? So Paul wants to be all things to all people that I might win some. Jesus with the woman at a well, he overcomes cultural obstacles to create a bridge to give her the truth. I've said before, and Pastor Jamie loves to quote me, and it was a Holy Spirit thing, because I don't really remember if I even wrote that down. But when I say that grace is the envelope, truth comes in, right? That doesn't mean we don't deliver the truth. It just means sometimes if we don't do that gracefully, doesn't make the truth less true, doesn't make God less God, it makes our evangelism less effective. I can win arguments. I'm good at winning arguments. But I'm not called to win arguments. God didn't call me to win arguments. He called me to win souls. Whole souls that he's prepared. But most of the time, and it took me a long time to learn this, most of the time, if, if not probably all the time, people's objections are not intellectual. They're deeply, deeply emotional. They are deeply, deeply tied into rebellion. Everybody wants to say, I'm my own God. I'm the king of my own universe. I get to do what I want. I make all the rules. Everybody wants that. That's our default. And Jesus said, if you continue to live in that, you'll never be free. You'll never live. It's only when you submit to, to me. Right? You want to be free? Submit. Sounds like a paradox. That's the power of the gospel. It's an upside down. We've talked about this before. It's always like that. Serve to be great, right? Die to self to live. It's always an upside down kingdom. It's the least of these. What are you doing for the least of these, Jesus says, right? So Paul, as was his custom, his custom was to reason with people wherever he went. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19. 
There's some scholars, I mean, they go back and forth with it. Some scholars will say that it's better, uh, it's better actually translated as, as you go make disciples. Either way, people argue against that because then the imperative is on the, our, us going instead of the disciples. It's clear that the main thing is the disciple making. And the point is, I think there is some truth to be drawn out from. It's, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to meet with this person and talk about Jesus or I'm going to minister. It's another thing to just live your life with the sense that your life is ministry and that you're going to have opportunities that you couldn't have planned for. You're going to have divine appointments all throughout the day and you need to be prepped up and aware and ready. But sort of as you go make disciples, I like that. Make disciples as you go. Yes, go specifically to make disciples sometimes. But wherever you go as God's people, you're to be making disciples. William Carey said this, The commission is not fundamentally about mission out there somewhere. It could be. For some people, that's their specific calling, and I don't mean to take away from any sort of foreign missions. The gospel for all people at all times. But he said it's a commission that makes disciple-making the normal agenda and priority of every church and every Christian disciple. We think missions work is what you do when you go to another country. But missions work is what you do if you're a Christian when you go to work every day. And when you pump your gas. And when you talk to your husband or your wife. Or when you try to you know, minister, be a parent. Be a friend. That's your ministry. That's missions work. So how do we do it? Getting back to our text. We know the condition we're in. We know things are upside down. We know we're called to turn them upside down. We know we have to do it as part of our everyday experience of living, as part of the church, that we gather to be equipped for this type of work. And again, we go back to the text and we see it says Paul reasoned from the scriptures. You know, I was telling somebody the other day, the more I study... The more I realize how little I know, and you start, you know, pursuing education, and you think you're going to get smarter, and then you just feel so much less smart the more educated you get. Like, that's just kind of how that works. But as I pursue education, as I pursue the things of God, you get into these theological, you know, debates that are healthy and good, because, you know, the only way that you develop yourself is you, you, you know, you encounter different ideas, and you wrestle through them. And so that's good. And it can be productive, it can be harmful. But I always have to start with this question when I'm discussing theological matters. I always say to the person, do you have a high view of Scripture? And they'll say, you know, most people know what that means. In other words, is Scripture your authority? And if they say, well, you know, I don't know. And I'll say, okay, all due respect, I love you. I don't care what you think about anything at all. I just don't. I don't care what Oprah told you and what your neighbor told you and what you read on Facebook and what YouTube told you. I don't care in a, in a real kind of a way when it comes to, you know, theological truth. I want to know what the scriptures say. I want to know what the Bible teaches. And I'm not talking about things that are, you know, I'm not talking about I don't have conversations with people ever. I'm talking about when it's a theological discussion. Why? Because Paul's saying... We can all agree, this is the authority. I'm reasoning. Paul's message is not Paul's cleverness, is not how articulate Paul is. Paul's message is the message. That's the power in it. You could be really good at debating or arguing and clever and articulate 
and you can, you can present information better than somebody else that doesn't make your information true. You can win an argument and still be entirely wrong. It happens all the time. And so what do we do? You know, whenever people always talk about, everybody wants to talk about all kind of other stuff. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about the church? Well, what about this person said they're cool? Well, what about this? And I'll just say, hey, take a deep breath. What about Jesus? Let's talk about him. Did he exist? Let's talk about him. I remember, and I think I've shared this before, I remember having a discussion um, with an Australian person in the British Virgin Islands, and we were discussing intellectual, you know, the, the, theology, and, and he said, you know, I could give you guys even, why can't we just say Jesus was like a great teacher? I'm like, well, how good? Great among other great teachers? And he said, I don't know. He said, I might even be willing to say he was like the greatest of example, but why can't he just be like the greatest example of what hum- humans, like what we could all do, our potential? I said, okay, so you're willing to concede that Jesus is like the most complete or perfect human that ever lived? And he said, yeah. I said, you don't have an intellectual problem. You just have a rebellion problem. You just, you're a step away from worshiping him. You just don't want to worship him because you're worshiping you. And honest to God, it's probably the only honest conversation. He said, you're probably right. I mean, it's refreshing. You don't get that a lot. I said, yeah, you know, you're probably right. Because the gospel is an offense, it turns everything upside down. Because I want to be selfish. You think because I love Jesus and I'm a pastor, I've been walking a long time, that I want to be selfish, like right now as I stand here before you? Think God delivers you from that? Maybe to some degree in your actions, but your thoughts, you're always selfish. I always get a fight against being selfish. You know? I mean, that's what we do. How are we to do it? He reasoned from Scripture. He knew the Word. How can we reason from Scriptures if we don't read the Bible, we don't study the Bible, we don't devote in the Bible? Christians don't know the Word of God. I mean, we, we, you know, I, I talked before about the idea of a catechism or even the idea of, uh, of, of phrase repetition or of, or of repeating principles. The whole point of that wasn't just to do exercises for the sake of it. It was so you could say to a kid in a church years ago, hey, you know, what do you believe? And he could recite this. Now, whether he knew and whether there was a change and all that, but it's not an either or. It's a both and, right? You have to know the truth. I was talking to a friend the other day, grew up in a church, family loves the Lord, all that stuff. And he said, you know, I was always around the Bible. He said, I don't think I ever really read the Bible. Yeah, it was taught to me, and it was told, and I would read little pieces. But I ne- he said, I never sat down and just, like, engaged Scripture and asked the Lord. And he said, and I've been doing it. He was in Saudi Arabia, and he was, you know, had a lot of time. He was teaching English and just alone there. And he said, and I just started reading through the Bible, and it's changing my life. He reasoned from the Scripture. You know, probably the, the, the most common thing I hear from Christians and and. I include myself in this for sure, is, man, I just wish I had a little more faith. I want to, you know? I want to have a little more faith. I want to walk in faith. I want to be more faithful. I see how faithful God is. And then we just kind of, we just leave it there like it's some mystery. Like it's just something we want to do, but, eh. D.L. Moody said this about faith. I prayed for faith, and I thought someday faith would come down. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for faith. The Bible doesn't say don't pray for faith. But he's saying, but faith did not seem to come. 
And then I read the 10th chapter of Romans, Faith Comes by Hearing and Hearing the Word of God. I closed my Bible and prayed for faith. Now I opened my Bible. I began to study, and my faith has been growing ever since. You want to increase your faith? Press into the Word. Read the Word. Read the Word and wrestle with the Word and, and speak to other people about the Word. Get involved. Plug into stuff. I know it's challenging right now, but we're trying to, you know, whether it's Zoom or smaller groups, or we got, I mean, we got to do something. But there's, there's ways we can do it, you know? Press in. And then so, to kind of recap, so we see there's this, there's this sense of we're turning the world upside down in some people's eyes, and our eyes, the world's upside down, right? There's this, all this chaos, and Paul's going, hey, every day. As you go through your life, whatever it is you do, here's what you're to do. You're to reason with people from the truth of the gospel, from the word of God. You have to know the word to point people. You have to understand you're living life on mission. And then what are we called to do? We're called to point people to Jesus. Explaining and proving, the scripture says. What is he explaining and proving? He goes right to the heart of it. Jesus Christ was and is the awaited Messiah. Paul's not saying, I want you to like Jesus. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I'm going to leave here when you guys like Jesus. Paul's not saying, I want to teach you guys, and when you accept the truth of what I'm saying intellectually, I'll be satisfied with that. Paul's not saying, hey, this, this, this Jesus, he's a good teacher. Paul's saying, this Jesus, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He came, he died, and he rose again. That's the power of the gospel. That is true. Historically, philosophically, theologically, in every sense of the word, Jesus stands the embodiment of incarnate truth. And Paul's saying, that's what I'm testifying to. That's what the scriptures point to. This isn't about knowledge. This isn't about, you know, psychology or theology or sociology or politics. This is about the power of the gospel to change the heart of humankind. And Paul's saying, and this is the only way to do it. I'm going to explain and prove to you that Jesus is who he claimed to be. There's a book I have. It might have been, I'm not sure where I got this from. There's a few books I was, but it says this. Jesus Christ is the center and heart of the Bible. The Old Testament is an account of a nation. The New Testament is the account of a man. The nation was founded and nurtured to God, of God, to bring the man into the world. God himself became a man to give mankind a concrete, definite, Definite, tangible idea of what kind of person to think of when we think of God. God is like Jesus. Jesus was God incarnate in human form. His appearance on this earth is the central event in all of human history. The Old Testament sets the stage for it, and the New Testament describes it. As a man, he lived the most strangely beautiful life the world has ever known. He was the kindest tenderest, gentlest, more patient, most sympathetic man that ever lived. He loved people. He hated to see them in trouble. He loved to forgive and help. He wrought marvelous miracles to feed hungry people. For relieving the suffering, he forgot to take food from himself, for himself. Multitudes, weary, pain-ridden, and heartsick, 
came to him, and in him they found healing and relief. It is said of him and no other that if all the deeds of kindness that he did were written, the world could not contain the books. This is the kind of man Jesus Christ was. This is the person God is. Then he died on the cross to take away the sin of the world, to become the redeemer and savior of men. And then he rose from the dead. He's alive now. Jesus is not merely a historical character, but a living person, the most important fact of history and the most vital force in all of the world today. The whole Bible is built around this beautiful story of Christ, of his promise of life eternal to those who accept him. The Bible was written only that men might believe and understand and know and love and follow Christ. The center and heart of the Bible, the center and heart of history, the center and heart of our lives. Our eternal destiny is in his hand. Our acceptance or rejection of him determines for each of us glory or ruin, heaven or hell, one or the other. The most important decision anyone is ever called to make or settle on in his heart once and for all is what is your attitude toward Jesus on this everything depends. What is your attitude toward Jesus? Listen, Paul said it clearly. Paul said, look, if the best you have is Jesus is a good teacher, pack it in, go home. That's not good news. It's the worst news of all kind. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But Paul said, you and I are of all people to be most pitied. If we're trusting in Jesus for salvation and forgiveness, and there's no salvation and forgiveness... That's not good news. Jesus is not just a good teacher. If Jesus is just a good teacher, pack it up and go home. If Jesus was just one more person who claimed some sort of divinity, pack it up and go home. But if Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, proving he was who he claimed to be, everything changes. It's dependent of what you or I think about it. That's objectively true. We live in a world today where everything's subjective. Everything's about my experience and my preference and my feeling. I mean, I don't have to be a philosopher to look at if the best I got in my life experience is, is my, my thoughts. I'm doomed. Like, I don't need somebody else to tell me that. I just know that. I just know that that, that can't be it. And then finally, or as a culmination of this, Live your life for other people. Live your life aware of others. Everything that happened to Paul, everything that happened around Paul. When he was stoned and shipwrecked and persecuted and humiliated and beaten and imprisoned, when he was becoming all things to all people so that he might win some, Paul didn't go, Lord, I was doing my part. You didn't do yours. Lord, I was contending for the gospel, and look what I'm going through. No, Paul said, I know that I'm in prison, but people are hearing the gospel. I know that they're beating me, but I can't stop. i got to tell people about Jesus. Paul's saying, it's not about me or my experience. It's about my mission. It's about the truth of who Jesus is. Paul became all things to all people so that he might win some. Probably my favorite 
story about Jesus is in John 13. It's probably, to me, one of the most powerful, tender, beautiful, embarrassing, amazing teaching examples in all of Jesus' ministry. And it comes at the perfect time. John 13. I'm going to read in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and I love this phrase, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You know, we, we tend to read scripture with sort of this, you know, this, this uh, you know, very sort of antiseptic, this, this you know, kind of stripped down, clean approach, and we take the humanity out of the, the characters, the, the Bible stories. Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry. He's, he's hanging out with these people that he loved. These guys were his friends. He was with them all the time. And he taught, and he, and, he, and he pointed them to the Old Testament and to him being the fulfillment of that. He lived, and he did miracles. And he knows... He knows sitting there, when it says, having loved his own who are in the world, it's almost like a parent loves children, right? There's that sense of like, looking like, ah, you're a bunch of knuckleheads, but I love you, right? Like, you guys don't get this at all. You're not even close. Like, this is what I got, Father, right? These, these guys, right? I mean, these were people he cared deeply about, and these were people he knew that there was one among them that was going to deny him. There's one among them that's going to abandon uh, Deny him. One, one is going to, you know, sell him out. He knew all that. And yet, and to me, a very profound example in action of everything that Jesus was trying to do. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come back from God and was going back to God, sort of a very Job kind of a thing there, right? So the Lord gives, the Lord is taken. Like just this sense of, of, of just an understanding of who God is, of his mission in relation to the Father. Very profound. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, I want to pause for a minute because one of the things we need to understand is, first of all, as we know, they didn't have, like, really good sneakers. They didn't have whatever kind of cool sneakers kids wear nowadays. I wear shoes. I mean, they're not as bad as Gary White shoes downstairs. Sorry, Gary. But they're, you know. I'm starting to get to the age where I have to argue with my wife. Honey, can I wear these shoes? They're so comfortable. No, you can't wear those. It's like a comfortable pair of shoes. It's all I want. So old. They didn't have those things. They wore sandals. They didn't have asphalt. 
The roads were dirty. Sometimes they got wet. You can imagine. When, we, when they sat down, I don't know if you noticed, but they didn't have like a dining room table. They didn't have like the kids' table. That's the Judas table, you know, right? They didn't have. They were like on top of each other with the other dude's stinky feet and they all plate of food. All that to say they would have never had a meal without their feet being washed. And it was customary. In fact, it was a, it was a sign of, of, of your, you know, of your status if you had foot washers. If you have a party and you got one guy washing feet, you're all right. This guy down the street, his party, he's got 10 foot washers, right? That's a real big deal. But you wouldn't have a gathering and you wouldn't eat without somebody. Usually there would be the lowest in the status in the room would have done the foot washing. So the fact that Jesus is about to make an example... To say, guys, this whole time I've taught and, 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 and miracles and healed and everything I've heard, you, you guys have kind of missed it in your heart. And at that moment, when Jesus knelt down, they must have realized, oh my gosh, I should have been the guy washing the feet, right? I mean, Jesus, if anybody in the room does it, I mean, it's not going to be you. You know Why? Everybody's feet were dirty because everybody in the room thought they were above washing feet. That's why everybody's feet were dirty. What kind of church are we? I mean, I I like to think, and I do think, we're the kind of church that washes dirty feet. That loves broken people. But this Jesus is hanging out with his close friends. About to say the good, goodbye to them because he's going to go be abused and beaten for our sin. And before he does that, he decides one thing he'd like to do to really show the kind of person he is and the kind of person he's called us to be. Because he said, you asked me, if you're teacher and Lord, if I did this, then you don't just to go. He didn't say, hey, guys, how about this? How about for 2,000 years? You guys meet in buildings and you tell everybody about all the stuff I did. That'll be cool. No. To do it. Why did I do this for you guys? Because your feet were dirty? Yeah, but that's, that's like small. That's one thing. To teach you a lesson that you, should, that you should have done it to each other and maybe a mild rebuke of your spirit. Yeah, that's true. But as an example... The best teachers, they always do what they're asking you to do, right? I mean, the best way to learn is I tell you to do something, and then I tell you to do something, and I tell you to do something, and, and then I do it, and I show you how to do it, and then I do it with you, and then I watch you do it, and eventually you do it alone. And then eventually you show somebody else how to do it. If we're not intentional in our lives about that sort of discipleship making, It's not going to happen naturally. What is it we're doing? What's our our system? What's our method? And if we're not washing feet, then please stop telling everybody about how your people wash feet, and you know about washing feet, and Jesus washed feet, and Christians are really good at washing feet, and then you've never washed a a foot in your life. Because people look and go, there it is, another Christian. Not living it out. Is this, is this convicting? Is it 
yeah, it's convicting to me. This is to me. I feel this. I'm not, I'm not, I don't get this. I'm not me telling you. This is the gospel telling all of us, confronting us where we are, saying we got, we got to do better. Now, again, does that mean, you know, every, you know, we're the, you know, we're, we're the ones turn the world upside down like the world wants to tell us? No, that's not true at all. Some of the main things you need to know, the foot washing should have already been done. If you want to turn the world upside down for Jesus, you need to be ready to serve. If you don't think you're ever going to get into the place, well, I don't know if we'll ever have a servant's heart. You cannot be a Christian, you cannot be a Christian without having a servant's heart. You, you can't do it. A selfish Christian is an oxymoron. Are we washing feet? Are we being obedient to Jesus? Are we turning the world upside down, or is the world turning us upside down? Instead of washing feet, are we just sitting back complaining about how dirty everybody's feet are? I mean, we walk around, we don't even notice our own feet are filthy. Jason posted this the other day on Facebook. I changed it. You get to do that when you steal. What was Picasso said? Good artist, copy. Great artist, steal, right? It's Picasso said it. It's got to be. Knows what he's talking about. Christianity is not knowing Hillsong lyrics. It is not having a Bible verse in your Instagram bio. Being a Christian doesn't mean you have Scripture tattooed on you, which I do, by the way, just, just in case. Being a Christian doesn't mean following Jesus only when you feel like it. Obeying him only when it suits you. Acting like a Christian around your church friends, but then a fool around everyone else. Chasing after possessions and status, thinking that someday when you get there and when you have that, everything's going to be okay. Here's what Christianity is. And I know, like, people like to talk about, like, radical Christianity. This is just simple Christianity. This is basic Christianity. And that's always going to be radical. Because it involves denying yourself. It involves being doers of the word and not just hearers. Not just repeaters. I know lots of people that are like walking Bibles that can repeat a ton of scripture. Hopefully, that translates. It means living for Jesus 24-7. It means our lives are focused on following the word. And finally, it means on living for an audience of one, on pleasing Jesus instead of people. You know, we worry so much about what everyone else is going to think about us, don't we? Man, if we worried like 20%, 10% as much of what the Lord, you know, of disappointing the Lord or living, right? And we're so worried about what everyone else. Live so boldly for Jesus that you are turning the world upside down. In Galatians 5, verse 13, Paul writes, For you, you were called to freedom, brothers. I love this, and I, man, I mean, I'm, I'm reading a book right now um, by Oz Guinness, who's heir to the Guinness uh, 
beer fortune. He's a, a social critic, brilliant Christian, and in his, his whole premise uh, really is wrapped up, I think, in this scripture. He's saying, as an Englishman, he's saying, look, I'm a fan of America. The whole world is watching the American experience. It's exceptional and unique in the history of the world. We want it to succeed. And here's an observation. You guys fundamentally misunderstand what freedom is. Freedom is not the ability to do what you please. It is the wisdom to always do the right thing. And his whole point is that what's going to destroy America is we're going to destroy ourselves because we think is freedom is unregulated passion. We think freedom is you just do whatever you want to do. And that's the principle Paul's making here when it says, you were called to freedom, brothers. He's saying, you were called to true freedom in Jesus Christ. The one thing that you long for, that every human being longs for, because if you're living in sin, you're a slave to sin. And if you're a slave to anything, you're in bondage to it. That's just how that works. So Paul's going, no, the gospel set you free. You're called to live in freedom, to walk in freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. But now he's saying, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. I mean, this is, you could, I could preach a whole sermon just drop, uh, pulling out of the scripture. Paul's saying, look, yeah, you, you're free, you can do whatever you want, but don't use that to do what you've always done. What do you think? I'm free in Jesus, so now I can go live like an idiot like I've always done, and then, no, you're going to put yourself back in bondage. That was the point he's making. So he's saying, and he's, he's creating, there's really only two scenarios. He's creating a, an option here. He's saying, rather than use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, which is what Americans do, the American dream, the whole notion, not just American, Western, prosperous humanity, which is what we do. I don't want to even Westernize it, right? As we become prosper and we get more and more and we become more and more selfish and we want more and more, it's a whole vicious cycle. It's in the human heart. So we say, it's all about me. I work more so I can make more money, so I can have more time. There's this whole sense of we always use freedom for us. But he said, Paul's saying, instead of that, through love, serve one another. And then he's saying, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. We'll get back to that. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. You ever be in a room, or you ever, you ever go anywhere, and you see one person kind of like out, you know, kind of off to the side? Or you ever go somewhere, you're unfamiliar, and you're kind of, there's nothing worse than that, right? The welcoming of strangers. Being so aware in a crowd of other people that you go, hey, that person, maybe I'll go say hello. They look like they're lonely, or... I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous lands are saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger or come to you naked and clothe you? When do we see you in sick or in prison? What does Jesus say? The least. What you did for the least. What you did for the outcasts. For the lowest of the low in society. What you did for those people, you did for me. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement, because that's how he's starting there. In other words, so guys, like all that being said, 
If this is true, if there's any encouragement from the truth of the gospel, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from, from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others, having this mind, which is also in Christ Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in our own stuff that we forget our purpose. See, Paul didn't forget his purpose. In the market, in the synagogue, walking along the streets, Paul didn't forget his mission. When he was in jail, when he was being beaten, when they were like, beat it, get out of here, Paul, don't come back. You see, if we understand our calling to turn the world upside down and we live our lives intentional about making disciples, if we live lives centered on the word and we point people to Jesus, what will happen? I mean, you might be listening to the sermon so far and just being like, well, you know, these hard to do. I mean, I see where we are. I see what Paul's saying, and I can do that. And then we have the sense that if we got this right, like hypothetically speaking, right, if, if we internalized this and we studied and we did our devotions and we prayed and we knew the word and we were not arrogant in our presentation, we told people about Jesus, then everybody would come and to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? No. No. Verse 5. Some were saved, some accepted the message, and others were angry and, angry and they rejected it. Interesting that it says those who rejected were jealous. They were disturbed. Because we want to be our own gods, and so if somebody's suggesting another god, and I want to be my god, that's threatening to me. Their hearts were hardened. Some people still have that posture toward Jesus. There are some that will accept the message of the gospel, and others will reject it. And it's important that we have a, 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 an honest uh, expectation that we are doing ministry in a world and a culture that's hostile to Jesus. That natural man is, is an enemy of God. And so what happens? Persecution came. Christians are not going to be encouraged by the world. I'm not, I mean, actually, you know, sometimes I do get calls from people who I necessarily believe is encouraging me toward, you know, they don't know, but whatever. But for the most part, your non-Christian friends aren't going to come alongside you and encourage you toward living for Jesus. It's just not how it works. In fact, most of the system is going to come against you. And you can either get turned upside down and be in an uproar and be, you know, keep... Well, you can center yourself in the person of Christ and the power of the word. You can spend time devoting and, and praying and listening to the word. You can get involved. You can share with other believers. You can call and say, man, can you pray for me? I'm just discouraged right now. You know, you know how hard that is for some people to do? For a million reasons, but the number one reason is you're not listening to the right voice. But if you could just next time, just do it as an experiment. Just, you know, 
just humor me. Next time you're really discouraged, call up somebody and say, can you pray for me? And that, see, is there power in the prayer? Is it, yeah, yep, that, that's all true. But you know what? There's something in going, boy, Lord, I'm at the point right now where I'm just, I need you. I need you, and you know, I, I need you in a way that I don't even care. I want my brother to know. I want, I need prayer. I need fellowship. It involves all kinds of things. It involves a dependence upon God. It involves an invitation to community. It involves a surrender of self. There's all kinds of things that happen before you pick up the phone and you say, pray to me, and then your heart has already been being prepared in the person praying for the power of God to show up. But we say, you know, I said, should I ask for prayer? And then we say, nah, I don't want to bother anybody. Else. Before you know it, we have 30 reasons in our head why we shouldn't call somebody and ask them to pray with us. And the Lord says, the power that you just... I mean, you know, Christians, we complain all the time that, you know, the church doesn't have power, we don't have influence, and then we live powerless lives. Why? Because we're wrapped up in all the wrong stuff. Can you imagine what difference it would make if we were all committed to our own spiritual health, our spiritual vitality, if we just lived this stuff out, all the stuff I'm talking about? One point builds on the other. The world's upside down. And so we're called what? To every day as we go to reason with people. When, when you have opportunity, use discernment, use wisdom. Sometimes there's opportunities. Sometimes you're going to try and, and start a conversation. It's going to be a disaster. I mean, it's going to be, listen, you can't share Jesus with people, and if you've never had, like, that awkward or that embarrassing or that bad conversation, you're not doing good enough. Unequivocally, that's what I'm telling you right now. There's no, like, little asterisk or caveat. If you've never had an awkward Jesus conversation, you're not talking about Jesus enough. But so what? You know how many awkward conversations I've had about everything? Jesus is the only thing I want to talk about. It's the most important thing I have to talk about. I've shared with you before when I had somebody say to me once, don't you, aren't you afraid, you know, you, I mean, you go up there, you're speaking in public, or you're, you know, aren't you afraid you're going to look like an idiot? I'm like, <laughs> wait, what? Like, did you know me for the first 36 years of my life? I've, like, won the idiot award every year running. What? I will gladly be a fool for Jesus Christ. Gladly. So we press on. We press on. We press on and we press in. We trust in him. We find our encouragement in the Lord. And we encourage one another until he calls us home. That's what we do. There's no plan B. There's no other options. The God is the side of the church of Jesus Christ. It's the hope of the world. There's only one gospel. There's only one name under which men can be saved. And we need to profess it. 2 Timothy 1.8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace granted to us and Jesus Christ from all eternity. Paul's saying, if you're really living for the cause of the gospel, you're always suffering. In fact, you can't be living for the cause of the gospel and not be suffering. You can't be. Know the word. Live for others. Expect a difficulty and opposition and hard times. In this world, you will have trouble. 
Life is not for the faint of heart, folks. But what we do need to realize is that every day, in every situation, there is never a moment, there is never a time, there is never a relationship, or there is never a choice that we don't have an opportunity to press in and grow closer to Jesus Christ. And by doing so, become more like him. See, you can say, I want to be more like Jesus, I want to be more like Jesus, I want to be more like Jesus. But it's not enough to just want to be more like Jesus. It's not enough to just say that. Spend time with him. In prayer. In listening. Time alone. Just alone with the Lord, with no distraction. With, you know, prayer. Have time in prayer. That's important. But set aside time. Just try try do it this week. Take a half hour. We'll start with that. It's a lot. That's a long time. Trust me. Take a half hour. Shut everything off. Go in a room quietly. Don't fall asleep. Max is home, but I'm sure he's probably sleeping right now. But what do I mean? I mean, find a quiet spot where nobody's going to bother you, where you're not going to have any, and either, you know, you want to read a scripture, fine, or just sit there and say, Lord, I just want to enjoy your presence right now. I don't have an agenda. I don't have anything to say. I just want to listen. I just want to be in your presence. And just, just listen quietly. And when I do that, sometimes I'll, I'll just kind of start with telling them how I feel. Like, Lord, I want to come before you today, and I just want to spend some time with you. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling good right now. Or, hey, I, right now, Lord, I'm, just, I'm discouraged, and I just want to be with you. And that's it. That's, that's the setup, Right? Lord, here's what I'm going through, and I want your presence. That's it. I'm not even expecting you. I mean, you know, the Lord will point scripture to you. I'm saying, but I'm saying, I think we diminish sometimes just being in the presence of the Lord and having him quiet our spirit. But we move so fast. We move so fast. We got to slow down. I've shared before Psalm 46:10, be still and know that I am the Lord, right? And in some translations, I think it's the NASB, it says, cease striving. It's not, stop trying. <laughs> Isn't that counterproductive? No, it's an acknowledgement of your limitation and your dependence on Him. It's, a, it's an acknowledgement of him being sovereign and ultimately in control. It's saying, I'm going to do what I can do, but I'm going to stop trying to do what I can't do. And I'm going to trust you. Cease striving is acknowledge your limits. Stop spinning your wheels. What are your goals? If I ask you your goals right now in life, Say, so what are your goals? What are you trying to do? Off the top of your head. And you would respond and say, well, I want to buy this car. I want to save this money. I want to buy this house. I want to, you know, work on this. I want to... Where's Jesus in that? If I ask you the question, what are your goals the next five years, and Jesus wasn't even on the list, all right. You can either feel bad about yourself, or you can stop and change that. You can start. We can start. I can start. We can start. When we close the service, before we enter into worship, that we can just confess our selfishness, our sin, our, our separation, and we can recommit our heart to Jesus. Never neglect the most important. 
Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Okay, so Jesus was arguing with those guys. He's, you know, he's kind of won that debate. We're better than those guys. We're going to come at them. That's kind of what's happening here, right? All right, Jesus is in a debating mood, right? And so one of them, an expert, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, they were not expecting Jesus to say what he said. If you would have given them 10,000 guesses, they wouldn't, have said, they wouldn't have expected this to be the culmination, the, the, the focal point. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The first and greatest commandment, they were familiar with that, was the Old Testament. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Just saying, you can distill the whole entire thing down to that. I know that all the rules. I know you guys wanted like a hundred-page legal manual of all the Christian life, of all the teachings and sermons, of all the spiritual disciplines. At the end of the day, what matters most in your and my relationship is where we are with God. If you want an increased faith, if you want to develop a love for the Scripture, if you want to see the fruit of the Spirit develop in your life, if you want faith in action, if you want to live for others, serving Christ in His church, be a person of prayer. Spend time with God. There's no other way. There's no shortcut. There's no cliff notes. Mark 9.24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Be honest with where you are in your faith. But make no mistake, your faith is what ties everything together. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not by works, so that none can boast. And Paul says in Romans 3, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of the law. The law that requires works, no. The law that requires faith. For we maintain a person is justified by faith apart from the law. We put these things into use by God when we exercise faith. As the worship team comes up and I close, I want to look at four words. Four words that contain profound insight. In Matthew 14, 22, if you walk away from the sermon with nothing else but this, this is what Jesus says. Matthew 14, 22 says, He dismissed the crowd. He dismissed the crowd. He dismissed the crowd. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jesus was in the middle of the thing he's supposed to be doing, right? Like, this is, this is life. This is, I got my work, I got my family. I'm in the middle of it. I mean, the activity seems like it's sort of at like a crescendo, right? Like, like this wasn't just any crowd. This was like a multitude. 
These are the people that have been following Jesus all around the sea. They've been watching him heal. Jesus' whole ministry was about getting people to follow him, to hear, and to believe his message. And now all these people, thousands of people are standing there, and they're hanging out his every word, and they watch him, and they're following. They're like traveling around with him. Why would Jesus seemingly tell all the people that he's lived his entire life to minister to? Right? I mean, why would he dismiss the crowd? Catch this. Because this is important, especially for us. Why would Jesus seemingly turn down an opportunity to minister to thousands of people? The Bible tells us in the next verse, Matthew 14, 23. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside to pray by himself. Listen to me. Jesus said no to the important to say yes to the vital. Jesus said no to the important to say yes to the vital. Absolutely, those things are important. Absolutely, these are the crowds. These are the people that his heart breaks for, that he's ministering to, that he, that he came, you know, Palm Sunday, that he wept over. He dismissed the crowds because he understood that his time with the Father, that his connection to God was the priority of his life. And he never wavered. I know Jesus was God incarnate. But I think sometimes in that we just go, yeah, well, he had the God card, so it made everything he'd do kind of easy. Jesus lived a life of dependence on the Father. And he was God. How much more do we have to live our lives in dependence on him if we want to be effective? Jesus did it. We can't take time to dismiss. Listen, I don't know what y'all doing, but if you're preaching to thousands on the weekend that are following you all around and people are getting healed, I don't know what y'all doing, but it's probably not that important. I'm just going to guess. And if Jesus was willing to take that and temporarily halt it, to seek his time with the Father. That should tell us something, folks. This wasn't a selfish decision. It was a deliberate choice to honor priorities. What are the priorities in our lives? In prayer, we are given purpose and power and passion and priority, and those things come from his presence. The knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of scriptures were to do what? To point to Jesus so we could have a living relationship. It's about his presence. So what am I saying? Stay true. If you are saved, if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of that gospel has been applied for your, to your life, if the Spirit, Spirit is dwelling in you and empowering you, you are the true church. And maybe you won't be a pastor or a preacher, but you're still called to minister. And Paul tells Timothy this, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Think back on your life. Look back at those people who've been your teachers in the faith. Those people who've had a great impact in your life and thinking. It's primarily not by what they said, but by living a godly example we live in difficult times, and yet we have this heritage 
left to us by the Apostle Paul and by many more who came after him to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith, holding fast to our confession of the unchanging gospel in an ever-changing world. I know it seems sometimes like we're not making much of a difference, like we're, you know, kind of going against the tide and all the, all the Lord's work. We simply live in faith in the little things and the day-to-day, and sometimes it, it's just tough, right? We, we look at, you know, we got grand visions instead of it's just one. You know, I tell people, you know how you do it? You do the next right thing. Forget about well, the day and the hour. Just do the next right thing, Right? There's a story of an elderly preacher who was rebuked by one of his deacons on Sunday. Pastor said to the man, something must be wrong with your preaching, your whole ministry. We've looked back, there's only been one person added to the church this whole year. He's just a small boy. The minister listened to him and his eyes were moistening. His thin hand was trembling. I feel it all, he said. God knows I've tried to do my duty. And so at that His heart was heavy. He stood before his flock. He finished his message. And he felt not for the first time a strong inclination to resign. But after everyone else had left, a small boy, that one small boy that the deacon had mentioned came up to him and said, Do you think if I worked hard for an education that maybe I could become a preacher someday, maybe a missionary? Tears welled up in the minister's eyes. Thank you, this heals the ache that I feel. Robert, I see the divine hand on your life now. God bless you. I think you will become a preacher. It's a true story, and many years later, an aged missionary returned to London from Africa. He was a man by the name of Robert Moffat, and his name was spoken with reverence. Nobles invited him into their homes He added many souls to the church of Jesus Christ, reaching some of Africa's most savage and lost chiefs. He was the little boy that the pastor had spoken to that Sunday morning. He had gone on to become a world-renowned missionary, reaching thousands for Jesus. See, folks, we don't know what our part is. We're called to be faithful and obedient in the little things. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Not COVID or politics or money or greed or war or your sin or my sin. Jesus went to the grave for those sins. He went to the grave to turn right what sin turned upside down. And he's calling us to do the same. Please stand with me as we close. Father, we come before you now. And we confess, Lord, that we can get distant, that we can be distracted. Father, that we can take our eyes off of Jesus, take our eyes off the cross. So, Father, we want to calibrate our compasses this morning. We want to realign our lives to Jesus Christ and his direction. Father, we've fallen and we've failed and we've been arrogant and selfish and all those things, Lord, but we repent. We confess our need of you, our dependence upon you. We come to you with gratitude for the cross, 
for your word and your spirit through this community, Lord. Father, deliver us from ourselves. Deliver us into your care, into your hands. We love you, we praise you. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father God, we lift you up in this place. Lord, in the words of Job, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, but my Redeemer lives. God, we know that our circumstances do not define you, Lord. God, that our pain is not a signal of whether we've pleased you or not, God. Lord, we ask us to see our sin for what it is, God, and to repent. And God, and that we trust you in everything else, God, as well. God, that our, our lights can shine, your light through us. God, for this world that we understand, as Job understood, that everything here, God, is temporal, that none of this matters, Lord, and that we live our lives every day for the only true thing that does matter, and that is Jesus. God, help us to show those people around us in love, God. Help us to live that kind of life that, God, that you call righteous, not what others think of us, God, but what you think of us. Lord, give us courage. Help us to encourage one another. God, help us to be brave and reach out, God, and to, God, let us to be this great thing for you in this city, Lord, in this town, God. Let us speak of you above everything else, God, that when people see us, they know that you're good. And in Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Something beautiful 